virtually every front. And so we want to look at those uh, together um, and, and look at diatrophies, diatrophies and, and make some application because even though it's unpleasant, there are things that are true of us, whether we realize it or not, that we see in diatrophies. And so we want, we want to be those who are like guys who are engaged in ministry, who are uh, shepherding that ministry along both in ourselves and others, and not like Diotrephes, who is hindering ministry, who is coming against all that the Lord would do. Uh, it's interesting, uh, as you study through and you read commentators and things, A.T. Robertson and his uh, uh, it's word studies in the New Testament, that's not what it's called, but I, I forget what it is right now, but he wrote an article in his in his uh, dealing with Diotrephes in uh, John chapter 3, in, in verse 10 in particular, he wrote, he, he talks about writing an article, and at the time he said it was something like 40 years ago, but he wrote an article for a denominational magazine and about Diotrephes. And once that magazine had hit its subscribers, uh, he got word back from the, the editor and the publisher of the magazine that there were 25 deacons from various churches across the United States that wanted to drop their subscription because they were convinced that A.T. Robertson was writing about them. That they saw in themselves and in his description of diatrophies something that they needed to take recognition of to the extent that they felt attacked. And so, indeed, there are those within the church who would use uh, the, the platform of the church for their own glory, which is what we find in diatrophies. But not only that, we need to examine ourselves and see what areas we may be mimicking that hindering of ministry. So let's talk about these things here for just a moment. Uh, first off, who was diatrophies? As I said, we don't really know much about him. Uh, like Gaius, we only know what we read here in Third John, but what we do know about him paints a very clear picture of a character or the lack thereof that, that this guy had. Um, his name means uh, Jupiter nurtured or Zeus nurtured, uh, and it's kind of a rare name in in Greek. It wasn't used very often, uh, and it was usually used among the upper class. Though there isn't any certainty that that's where Diotrephes came from. There are those who will make great uh, assertions that that is obviously the case with Diotrephes, and as a result of living in a privileged state for his entire life, he comes into the church and expects a privileged state. Uh, that is a possibility. I don't know that we can support that from the text that we have here. And so I'm not going to make that assertion. We don't have to make that assertion because people who will do like Diotrephes will come from all walks of life. And so we find uh, as well that he's somebody who attends church. As we talked about already, he and Gaius probably uh, attend, and it seems from the context that they attend the same church. And so we know that he's a man who goes to church. We don't know if he's a believer. We, I assume that he is. I assume that he names the name of Christ. His fruit would convince me or cause me to be wondering about his spiritual state, but 
I presume that he names the name of Christ. It seems clear from the context, as I said, these guys, they go to church together. They know one another. Um, that's why John could write to Gaius uh, about him, about Diotrephes, and have him be recognized. So here we have this, and what John is effectively doing is trying to get word to the church because we find that Diotrephes is not... Uh, he, he talks about in verse 9, for example, he says, I wrote unto the church. John has written a letter to the church. Now, it, it seems to indicate that this church has not received that letter. This letter wouldn't have been something that was uh, um, authoritative in the sense that Third John is. It's not part of Scripture. It's probably just explaining his intent and desire to come and visit them, and so on and so forth. But uh, he... For whatever reason, Diotrephes had, well, we're going to talk about some of those reasons from what we can deduce from Scripture this morning, has has hindered that letter. At any rate, what is very clear is that he held considerable sway. He, he was over the operations and over the organization of the church that he attended. I mean, he, and we don't know exactly what the circumstances were. He may have, he may well have been wealthy and had a large enough house that he could host the church. And as a result of that, maybe that's how he had some sway over things. As I said, we don't really know. And ultimately, that doesn't matter. For whatever reason, there he was, and that's how he was. Uh, but what we find first in verse 9, uh, if you'll read it with me, it says, I wrote into the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. So what we find is that here is this man uh, who has the pre, who desires to have the preeminence. It simply means that he likes to be first. He likes to be in charge. He likes the recognition. Uh, and that's where he wants to be. He wants to be respected and desired. And, and as a result of that, receiving a letter from John, who is an apostle, who, who doesn't, doesn't attend church there, but is engaged, obviously, he's the, at this point, probably the only surviving, because we don't know when Third John was written, but it's probably the only surviving apostle at this point. And so he has this sort of overall stewardship of the, the church. And historically, we understand that John is fairly engaged in writing letters and encouraging the body of Christ. And so that, that's where he's at, but uh, as a result of that, there's a threat to the influence and the preeminence that Diotrephes would have, because here is somebody coming in from outside who actually has authority, who God has appointed to be uh, something in the church, to, to, to correct, and, and so on and so forth. And so as, as a result of that, uh, he stifles the distribution of this letter. And he doesn't receive, nor will, and as we're going to find it's even worse than that, but he doesn't receive the authority, he doesn't acknowledge the authority that John has. Which would make me suspect of, of several things within that church, but uh, in particular, that, that there is a consistent theme where he is resistant to authority. Now, John has some experience in with this kind of person. Because John himself was this kind of person. Which is an interesting thing for us to understand because he has some insight and some 
uh, ability to discern from experience where Gaius stands. So let's look, if you will, in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look at verses 20 through 28. So here is Jesus. He's walking. He's, he's with the disciples. And we remember that John, he's uh, he's one of the sons of Zebedee, right? So that's that's who's talking. Then came unto him, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. So here, get the picture. Here's Jesus. He's with his disciples. Here comes John and James with their mother. And, and really the sense is that she's bringing her boys along with her. But they're there. So there's been, uh, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but there's some understanding and discussion between these three. And so she comes to Jesus, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. Now, I'm convinced that obviously John and James are, are uh, these brothers, these, these sons of thunder, as Jesus nicknamed them, uh, that they are sincere. And, and, uh, and Zebedee's wife, their mother, is sincere. They're just sincerely misguided. She says in verse 21, Jesus asked her, What wilt thou? And she says unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, and the other on the left in thy kingdom. So Jesus asks her, she, he obviously understands that she wants something, and he asks the question, What do you want? And she says, Listen, it's no big, she doesn't say this, but right, it's no big thing. But this is my request, that my two sons would have the two places of preeminence in your kingdom, one at the right and one at the left hand. That they would get the first and second places in your kingdom. That's what she asked. And Jesus says unto her in verse 22, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we are able. Right. So Jesus is, uh, is letting them know, and he's uh, up to this point in, in Matthew even, uh, but in particular in John's gospel, we have a very clear understanding that there is some suffering associated with following Christ. And that the persecution that is guaranteed, so on and so forth, all of that is part of our discipleship. That it's going to come. That it isn't going to be a perfect world. That it's not going to be uh, pie in the sky and no flat tires that it's going to be a rough patch, that naming the name of Christ is going to be uh, equal to being an enemy of the world. We understand that. We're looking back at it. And I think it's interesting that in particular in John's gospel, his perspective understands that because here he's given some insight into that in this brief interaction with Jesus. And as a result, they they're, they're pose the question and they're like, they, they agree John and his brother, yeah, we can we can handle it. Bring it on. We're fine. Whatever you're going to go through, we'll go through it too. Verse 23, Jesus says, You shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. Jesus makes it clear that, listen, for you as disciples, in particular as apostles, you're going to have the opportunity to follow me in the sufferings that I'm going to endure, but it is not my place nor my authority to give you what you're asking for. 
that is in the hands of the father completely. And, and so, yeah, you indeed will suffer. You indeed will go through the things that I go through. And when the 10 heard it, right? So here's the other 10 guys that Jesus hangs out with. When the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren, right? Here are John and his brother who are acting just like Diotrephes, who are seeking this preeminence within the kingdom of God. So much so, and directly so, that they would ask Jesus specifically for the privilege and the right and the position that they desire. And of course the other ten are going to be upset. They don't have any, any right to ask what they're asking. In verse 25, Jesus called them unto him, and he said, You know the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and that they... Uh, and that and they that are great exercise authority upon them. So here is Jesus, and, and he's painting a picture. He's talking about the Gentiles. And, and just understand, right, that we have in, in their culture and what they're experiencing in their life, they have the Romans who are occupying Jerusalem. They're in the nation of Israel, and they're bearing down. They have this dominion over the lands that they've conquered. And the Roman Empire is unique in some, some respects in that they get to keep worshiping the gods that they worship to, to whatever degree that they can, uh, but they exercise this authority. And they that are great exercise authority. So they are elevated. Those who are um, put in those positions, in other words, what Jesus is saying, that listen, even amongst the Gentiles, those who are put in positions of authority are put there by those who are in positions of authority. I don't have the authority to give that but he goes on, and he, and he builds upon that. He says, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus is talking about the difference between his kingdom and the kingdom that they are witnessing, that they experience. Right? Even in the nation of Israel, we find that David, uh, for example, that he exalted people uh, within the kingdom of Israel for specific positions. And there were people that were known to him, people that had the ability, that had, uh, there were great people, and they were brought to those positions, but they were put there by him. And so here is Jesus, and, he, and he's talking about this. Listen, my kingdom is going to be different. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or your servant. Right? It isn't that you were born into wealth. It isn't that you have pre prestige and position. It is that you would be serving, that you would become great in the kingdom of God. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus concludes with this idea of his service, his example being such that we would go out and serve. John is familiar with people like Diotrephes because he himself was like Diotrephes. He's learned the lessons and he realizes the damage and the division that it can cause because here are these other 10 who are at odds with him now as a result of his seeking this position in the kingdom. He knows the harm. He knows the, the divisiveness that comes. And he's instructed by Jesus as well as the rest of the disciples firsthand that, listen, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, then you have to be the least. You have to be the servant of all. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Jesus would say, listen, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who, being equal with God, didn't think it to be robbery to be equal with God. He, in fact, 
was God. And this is a kind of a rough paraphrase, obviously. But what does it say? It said, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of like you and I, just like any other person. Jesus, who was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all of the universe, made himself just like anybody else. As we would read in Isaiah, that there was no form nor comeliness. There was nothing that would cause us to desire or recognize him. And that's the form that he took upon himself. Why? Because he came for the purpose of serving, that he might die on the cross, that he might be the, the one who would pay the penalty for sin, for your sin and my sin, and the sin of all of mankind. This is the position that we hold. This is the point of service that we would give, that, that everything like Gaius, who is a sterling example of putting others first, of serving, of ministering in the name of Christ for his glory and for his honor, not for his own recognition, not that anyone would clap their hands and celebrate, though God is good at honoring those who honor him. In Romans chapter 12, if you'll turn there for a moment, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. As we look through and we, we find these, and we talked about these last week, these graces, this desire and ability to serve, and to, to minister in the name of Christ, and knowing that we all have been given grace to steward for the glory and the recognition of God and, and all that He has done for us, we also find within that list a list of things that are imperatives, the things that we should be doing. They're, they're commands for you and I as believers. And in verse 10, it says this, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. In other words, we're going to put others before ourselves, that we're going to serve them, that we're going to watch out for those uh, who, who have need, whatever it may be, as we read in uh, in uh, 1 John uh, three seventeen, I believe, that if we see our brother and he has need, that we're going to meet that need. We're going to do what we can. Otherwise, how is the love of God in us? Right. So, so we have this idea that we are to prefer others, that we are, we are to engage in service, and this is an imperative. This is what we do. This is part of what uh, as we looked at Christianity 101 last week and sort of the overview of, of things that we can begin in ministry in, one of those was simply being faithful in the service that we have. So whatever we, we purpose to do, whatever we are engaged in worship and fellowship, that we would first let that be an outlet of purpose, of intent to serve. So here is John. He has a experience with people like Diotrephes who want to be first, he himself being one that was like that. Now, he has learned the lessons. And we need to learn those lessons, too, because to whatever degree, we sort of like recognition. We, we sort of like uh, being understood uh, and acknowledged. Everybody likes an attaboy. And there's nothing wrong with, with receiving them. It's when we, like Diotrephes, demand them that it becomes an issue. Now, as we talk about Diotrephes, he has a legacy, has this enduring, just like Gaius has a legacy. As I said, God is good at rewarding those who serve him and honor him. Gaius, Gaius is here recorded in 3 John as an example of righteousness, of service, of faithfulness. And Diotrephes is recorded for time and eternity. His word will not pass away. As the exact opposite. This is what he's known for. Is what he's recognized for. And ultimately, we find that it's deeper than just 
seeking the preeminence. So that is sort of the, maybe the root, but it goes much further than that. It, ultimately, what he is saying is that I know better than God. His desire for recognition and preeminence leads to a rejection of the God-ordained authority of John. That I know better who should be in charge of things than God himself, who has not only created all things, but has created the entity that we call the church. He knew better than God uh, who and how the church should operate. And this is an interesting thing because this is characteristic of false teachers or false prophets throughout the New Testament. Even in the Old Testament, we find this to be a stated purpose or, or a stated characteristic, rather. In 2 Peter chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, now, this is in the context of the of false teachers. Uh, but here he says, uh, chiefly them uh, that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitary. So two things happening in that verse. The false teachers are first, uh, they despise government. And all that word government means is authority. Those that God has established. That God has established within the church, whatever it may be, we find in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is a structure there, that there are apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. And that God has established those to be uh, teaching and preaching and shoring up the understanding and the knowledge of the, of the church so that they're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And we've talked about in the past, you know, you know the specific office of apostle and prophet uh, not being the same as it used to be because we have the completion of God's word. So those two offices uh, are have become unnecessary and are no longer in existence, but pastors and teachers are, and there's some authority that is established there within the church. Uh, in pastors, I would include elders because we find that being uh, synonymous and interchangeable in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. Those who would lead the church that God has established to be in uh, governance over the body of Christ are the very ones that are going to be attacked by the false teachers, that, that are going to be evil spoken of. So they despise the government. They don't like that. But they're not only that, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, that it's a small thing for them to to say, well, so and so had, uh, you know, really stepped in it over here, or 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 you know, they're not doing this, or whatever the case may be, whatever the accusation is, we find that Diotrephes does this too. But they do not accept the authority that, of those that God has put in authority. It's interesting to me in the book of Hebrews it talks about that. Uh, it, it says, "Remember those who have the rule over you." And and I didn't even put it in my notes, so I'm shooting from memory here just a little bit. But he basically is talking about, listen, be submissive to them because, in other words, don't make it harder on them. That God has established authority, and, and we all have the responsibility, no matter who that authority is or what that looks like, that, that we would exercise maturity as we read uh, Jesus talking about uh Controversy between people, individuals, whether it's in Matthew 18 or other places. But there's basically two things. Somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else. It's one of those two things. 
And in both instances, the responsibility is mine to go to that person. And if and if that's the what is being lived out, that we should meet each other in the middle because they're on their way because I have something against them or they have something against me and vice versa on the other end. That we would come to those people, that we would talk to them directly. So what we find is that here is the octopus, and not only does he not accept the God-ordained authority of John, but he's speaking evil of it, and we'll get to that more here in just a moment. But he's usurped authority as well. He's taken authority that is not his. Like I said, we don't know exactly what the nature is. There are those that uh, scholars that believe that Diotrephes was an elder or a pastor in a church, and that is possibility. Uh, I don't think that that's the case, but it is possible. We, we don't know enough to make that determination conclusively or to make it, uh, to understand that it isn't, that it couldn't be that possibility. So whatever it is, he's usurped the authority that that is there. So me, as a pastor here, if if John the Apostle was alive today, there would be some submission on my part to that authority because that's an authority that supersedes the pastoral, pastoral authority, right? That's where we're getting the very word of God that we should be preaching. And so our submission to the word of God, in many respects, is a submission to the same pastoral authority. But here's Diotrephes. He knows better than God. He knows better than the people that God has put in uh, in offices to steward those kinds of things. And so he usurps the authority to the extent that he would put people out of the church. If we look in verse 10, he says, wherefore, Paul, or excuse me, John says, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words and not contend therewith. Neither does he himself receive the brethren and for forbiddeth them that would and casteth them out of the church. Right? He's, he's expelling people, he's excommunicating people from the church, from the body of Christ, because they would submit to the God-ordained authorities. Because they would receive these brethren, even these traveling missionaries, uh, and, and bring them in and, and have some fellowship and communion with them. That they would partner with them in prayer, that they would give finances, whatever it may be. He is going to the extent, and I believe it's because he feels threatened that he's going to be exposed, that, that his uh, authority, his preeminence, his position uh, that he is, holds for himself is threatened. I, again, that's just my personal belief, uh, but that's not his position to be in. I tend to think that he's not an elder. I tend to think that that's not the case. Um, but I, like I said, you can't make that determination conclusively. Uh and so to that end, uh, he's he's a usurper. He stepped into a position and a role and an authority uh, that he shouldn't be in. Not only that, and this should be concerning, right, that, that if he's not an elder, that he is allowed to be in that position, that he is allowed to usurp that authority. And we're not reading about what the church is doing. We're not reading about how the church is handling any of this. I mean, there could have been a split already within this church as a result of this. We, we don't know any of that. That's not given to us in the text, nor is it anywhere in Scripture that we can find. But whatever the case may be, he is a divisive man, he has ambition for self, and he desires to be first. In Ephesians 4.16, uh, Paul writes, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, speaking of Jesus Christ, 
right? The, he is the guy, he is the God who is fitly joining together the body, compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. In other words, here is God who is putting the body of Christ together. And it's like a puzzle. Each piece meshes perfectly with the pieces around it and has to go in its specific location. And each piece has its specific function and purpose. It paints its part of the picture. And we've all done it where we take it. It's very, very close, right? And so we just kind of jam it together. And then you got to flip it over to see if it actually fits because, you know, the colors are right, and, but it's clear it does not fit. And this is, that that's sort of the picture of Diotrephes there here. He is usurping this authority. He is putting things together. He knows better than God, even though it is God himself who puts the church together, who puts them here or puts them there or who moves them around. Whatever he does, he does. Yet he's in a position where he's putting people out of the church. He's removing pieces and saying, these are unnecessary. That's what I do because I don't like, I don't mind puzzles, but you know, they're big. The little ones that come in the boards, you know, there's like six pieces. Perfect. Those are the puzzles that I like to do. They have the shapes drawn right on the cardboard. Listen, simple people have simple ways. But Geotrophies is taking the things that don't fit in his mold and throwing them out. And whatever the purpose may be, whatever the, the, the underlying motivation is, in his case, it's that he is threatened. He, he wants to be first. And those who would accept others may not be in submission to him. And so therefore he's going to deal with that. And the only way he can deal with that is to get rid of them, to push them out. This is part of his legacy. Not only that, but we read in verse 10, as we read, he says that he brings uh, these Prating, prating against us with malicious words. All that means is that he brings unjustified charges, this idle talk, that he has no problem, just like we read in 2, Tim, 2 Peter, he has no problem talking bad about John. And you can imagine the things that he would say, right? You know, here, here, here he is, and John's over here, wherever John is. We, don't, we can't talk about where he is because we don't know when this was written. But John's not there at this church. And so you can imagine the things that he would say, you know, listen, this guy over here, he's not even here. He's, he doesn't know the struggles that we have in our church. He doesn't know what's going on here. He's not for you or me, so we're going to have to be for ourselves. And, and he builds this support. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating, and I realize that. But he has no problem speaking out against John, who is a God-ordained authority. And he attacks that authority. And he brings these charges that amount to nothing. It's just idle talk stirring up controversy and divisiveness that doesn't need to exist. We're not told what those things were, what, what those accusations are, 
but their design was to sway the opinion of the church. And it was tailored to prey upon those who first were immature in the faith. It was tailored, it was designed to be in such a way that it would prey upon those who are immature in the faith. Turn with me to 2 Peter. Because as we look, uh, Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7 that you're going to recognize false teachers by their fruits. And as a result, we can take some of those and we can, we can make some application here because here what we see Diotrephes doing is, is almost textbook what these false teachers would do. In 2 Peter chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, speaking about these false teachers, he writes, They have eyes full of adultery and they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Right, so here, here is, and let's just take this in reverse. We have this discussion about Balaam. And you remember Balaam, he was hired by Balak, the, the, the king there, to, to curse Israel. And, as a re, and, and God told him no. He, he was a guy who was, in fact, a prophet. When he spoke, somebody would be blessed and, because he was speaking on God's behalf. And that much is clear in the text. But he really wanted the reward because they promised him half the kingdom if he would but curse Israel. And so the first time he tells him no, but he really wants to, and they keep upping the ante, and he finally gives in. And this is the whole encounter, right? He gets on the donkey to go follow the guys, and the donkey turns off the path. Why? Because the angel of the Lord is standing there in the path to slay him. Why? Because he's gone against God. And so he beats the donkey, and this happens a couple of times, and then the next time the donkey speaks. Right? That, that's... Listen, he's like, why are you beating me? All I'm doing is turning off the path because the angel of the Lord is up here waiting to kill you. And then it's at that time that God tells him, listen, all you're going to be able to do is bless Israel. All you can do is say what I tell you to say. And so he does. They take him to the top of the hill and he blesses Israel. That wasn't what he was there for. That's not what he's getting paid for. So what does he ultimately do? Well, he tells Balak, listen, this is what you have to do. If you want to overcome Israel, what you have to do is send some of your young ladies down there, but you have to get them to follow idolatry. You have to get them to forsake their God. You have to follow some other God, and then he'll be against them. Right? And he did that why? for the money. Now, we, are, we don't necessarily get the sense that that's Diotrephes' motivation. His motivation is, is just selfish ambition, is pride. I want to be the first. But he'd do whatever it takes. He would tear down and do whatever it takes to get that, just like Balaam would. But you notice here that these they have their eyes that are full of adultery, so on and so forth, but they are beguiling unstable souls. That those who are immature in the faith, that they are unstable in their faith, so either they're young believers who, who just don't know better, or they're those who have doubts or who, or who are uh, immature. They haven't grown in their understanding. And as a result, they're easy targets. They're unversed, like, like Gaius, who is known for his knowledge of truth and his application of it. They are unversed in the truth and, and its application. And that's why 
we we put in that list of Christianity 101 last week, one of the things that we put in there was study. That we would engage ourselves in regular interaction with the Word of God so that we're not immature. Why? Because that's how we grow. That's how we begin to take every thought captive. That's how we know what the mind of Christ is. It's the Word of God and it's study it's interaction in our life with which God is going to purify us. That's how Jesus purifies the church, we read in Ephesians chapter 5. And so here are those who are immature in the faith, and Gaius preys upon them. Not only that, but those who are who are harboring sin and guilt. Right? They, they be themselves become easy targets. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We find uh, this another description of false teachers, and this is what it says, 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 7. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. They are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just understand this, and I want to make it very plain right from the beginning, this isn't limited just to women. That there are those who are laden with sin, who are harboring it, and they're from both sexes, men and women. People in general will do this. And what it is, is that anyone that would ignore the plain revelation of the word in their life, Right in James chapter 1, in verse 24, it talks about the word, the law of God being a mirror that we look into and we behold our natural self in a glass. Right, We see who we really are. And there are those who are going to respond to that, and they are the ones who, uh, whether it's coming to faith or whether it's simply coming to repentance and change, transformation, uh, growing in Christ, they're submissive to it. They yield themselves to the Word of God, and as Paul would say, they let it dwell in them richly. It instructs them when they need to turn left or turn right. For them, it serves as a roadmap, as a thing that they can move forward in, in confidence that they're going to get to the destination. But there are also those who look into the mirror of the Word of God, and when they see it, as it says here, that they are ever learning and able, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That they look into the Word of God and they are unwilling to recognize or acknowledge that which is really in them. They don't want to deal with the truth. And so what do they seek? They seek justification of their position. They seek justification that uh, that listen, you're, you're okay, you're really not that bad, you're, you're a good person, whatever it may be. And here is Diotrephes who, who weighs in on the matter saying, listen, we don't have to be confronted with truth because you know that guy over there doesn't even know what's going on over here. So th these... These things, these slanderous accusations that are being brought against John and, and those who are in the, the brethren uh, are designed, at first, to prey on those who are immature in the faith. And secondly, they're designed to prey on those who are harboring sin and guilt, to, to give them an easy justification. Not only that, and third, they are uh, designed to, to prey upon those who are ready to reject truth. 
in Second Thessalonians, and this this fills two categories. This is either uh, people who are saved, who who are uh, related to and like those who are harboring sin. They don't want to be confronting that, or it's it's non-believers. But in Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, verses ten through eleven, uh, excuse me, ten through twelve, and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a, there is a world around us that is willing to believe the lie because it doesn't confront them. We read about that in John chapter 3, Jesus himself saying, that, listen, we don't want to come to the light because it exposes that our deeds are evil. If I'm not confront, if I'm not in the truth, I'm not confronted by the truth, the light of the word of God isn't shining into the darkness of my heart. There are those, and we read about them in Romans, and it's the same here in 2 Thessalonians, who are willing to, to stifle, to hold down the truth in unrighteousness. And here, this slander, the, the, un, the things that are being said against John and, and the brother and those who are, who are in authority, those who are, who are faithful in the body of Christ, all of it is designed to prey upon these people, to build a community of people who are against, who are unwilling to acknowledge the truth, who are uh, uh, ill-prepared to handle the truth. This is a method and what we see false teachers doing throughout the New Testament. So I think that a, a perfectly plausible theory in regard to the Atrophies is that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. That he's there, that he, for whatever reasons, recognizes that the church is a place where he can gain some credibility, some recognition, some, some pats on the back that he desires. And he recognizes that a, the, that a means to do that is to attack those who are in authority, to, to prey upon those who are immature in the faith, those who are un, unsound in the truth. And this is what cults do. I don't know if that's the case with geotrophies, but I think it's a reasonable explanation. But you notice what John says in, in verse 10? He says, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he, which he does. And John is basically saying, listen, when I get there, I'm going to deal with the atrophies myself. And he's going to do it publicly. And we need to realize that these divisive people, those people that are in the church like this, there is a reasonableness and, and to remove them from the church. Right. There are though there's a method and a means to go through right with the uh, those we, we got to go to that person first individually whether and, and in this case something like diatrophies it should be the leadership of the church uh, uh, conversing with this person and moving through the through the you know if there's un, not any repentance right we're gonna have to escalate this we're gonna take some witnesses and then ultimately we're gonna have to address the sin that is here, the controversy and the divisiveness that it's causing, and we're going to have to put the person out of fellowship. That's what's going to have to happen. 
And that's what should be happening to, to somebody like Diotrephes. John's fully willing to do that. He's willing to, to take uh, Diotrephes and throw him out by the ear for the sake of the body of Christ. Now, I wanted to just point out, and it, because I don't feel like it's often talked about, but right, the, the point and the purpose of putting somebody out of fellowship is to gain them back. And they're not always going to be responsive, and probably some leg diatrophies is probably not going to be. But it might be just the thing that would cause them to realize where they were at. That is the point of church discipline. And I want you to note that, that it is a church discipline. When, when the church disciplines somebody, that is, it is the congregation and it is the church itself, not simply the leadership doing that, but it is the church doing what it needs to do. And so what do we do? We treat that person as an unbeliever. We're going to share the gospel with them. We're going to confront them with truth. We're going to, we're going to address them in such a way that, that they're hearing the gospel. And they may be completely unreceptive, they may be completely unrepentant, but the end game, the, the goal of all of that is to bring them back, to fellowship with them again. That's, that's why it's done. Now, as I said, we want to make some application. We want to talk about diatrophies and let that be, let the Word of God be in our lives a little bit of a mirror, uh, because I think that there are ways in which we we are quick to say, well, I'm not like Diotrephes. And yeah, there's a lot of ways that that's true, but there's other ways where it, where we are. There's an eye problem, right? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14 for just a moment. I want to begin there because in Isaiah 14, what do we find but uh, the fall of Satan? That's what we see happening. Diotrephes' pride primarily manifests itself in a desire to be first over the church. And, and he overstepped and assumed that he knew better than God. Ultimately, he became a god after his own image. Which is not dissimilar from what we find Lucifer, Satan, doing in Isaiah chapter 14. Let's, let's look at this. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. This is very fun, right? To be confronted a little, to, to be compared to, to Satan. <laughs> I understand. Listen, I've been dealing with that for a week. Here's the thing. This is what he says, and we're, we're going to close on a positive note. For, for the most part, a positive note. <laughs> Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How art, thou, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, don't miss what he is saying here. Uh, Jesus would say as well, I and the Father are one. I am like him to the degree that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? To be like God is to be God. That's exactly what he's saying. So here is, here is Satan himself saying, listen, I desire the preeminence. I desire to be first above all of the stars of heaven, right? Above all of the angels. I'm going to rule the angels. Not only that, but I'm going to take the throne of God for myself. That's what he's saying. 
that I know better than God? That I, in my infinite, it's not infinite though, in my finite wisdom and understanding and insight, in my createdness, no better than the infinite, uncreated creator of the universe. C.S. Lewis wrote it, he, he put it this way, uh, and I, just a paraphrase of the quote, but he says he was, he says that the pride was, Satan's pride was, uh, what made the devil the devil. He was unwilling to be the to be what God had created him to be and to do what God had created him to do. He was just like Diotrephes. I know better than God. In Genesis chapter 3, we find him causing doubt and sowing some under, misunderstanding in Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, we find the fall in, in verse 6. Right here is the serpent, here is Satan himself beguiling them, tempting them, causing them to look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit thereon, that which they are not supposed to eat, that they, God commanded them not to eat. And this is, this is where they conclude. This is where they come to. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So what did they say? They, they, they effectively, if we, if we boil this right down, right, here is Satan tempting them. Here, are, here is them taking what they can see, taste, touch, and feel and concluding in their finite understanding that we know better than God. God commanded us not to eat of this, and the day that we eat it, we're going to die. That's all we need to know. But what do we see? Well, gee, it's, it's good for food. It's growing right on it. It's, it's pleasant to the eyes. It's a really pretty tree. It looks good to me. It's a tree to be desired. It makes us wise. Can't be that bad. What we find is that even if we don't desire to be preeminent, we don't desire to be first, we still struggle with the I problem. That I would know better than God. That we would exercise pride in other ways and that it would come out in different ways. Uh, and I don't want to give you some examples, some for instances. I don't know that this is true of anybody here necessarily, but I want to help us open our understanding. If the Word of God took the time to write down and to preserve diatrophies for all of eternity, there's something to learn there. So we may put our desire for safety or stability before our trust in God. That I know better than God and that I this is where I have to remain, this is what I have to keep doing because it provides safety and stability. Even though God himself is promised that I would, that he would meet my needs, that he would take care of me. Remember in the green letters in the, in the faith chapter, that's that's part of, do we have this knowledge of what God has promised of his, of his faithfulness that we see? And so uh, what we need to do as a result of that is to operate in faith, that our faith is predicated upon the faithfulness of God. 
And we see to be unquestion- him to be unquestionably faithful. Yet I would know better than God. We may uh, serve our ease and our comfort before we serve God. Which, let's, let's face it, that's <laughs> that's a common one, right? But I would put, you, you know, I can, you come home from work, uh, you're tired, you've spent all day teaching kids or making meals, whatever it is, right? We, we have busy lives. And we add all of that stuff to it, and then we, we say, well, gee, I don't have time to serve God, or I don't have... Uh, the, the desire or, or I'm too tired or whatever it is, whatever the form of that excuse is, right? Here's the thing. We're all busy. These people who are traveling around, the, these missionaries who are traveling around in third John, they were busy. I mean, they traveled from wherever they went to wherever they went and they purposed to not be uh, beholden or to take anything from the Gentiles that they were ministering to, which tells me that like Paul, in some instances, they were supporting themselves which means that they were preaching the gospel, they were evangelizing, they were serving, and they were providing for their needs. And that's busy. That's 24-7. Just like us. We have 24-7. We all have life all day long. And we might just be tempted to say, I know better than God, and that I am going to serve myself rather than God. My ease, my comfort, my my ability to rest, whatever it is, I'm not going to give of myself because I don't have that to give. And it's just not true. We do have that to give. We might even attack authority. I mean, it's easy to talk about it in a political uh, sense because that's just low-hanging fruit, right? Which is probably what was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was low-hanging. It was easy to get to, right? You didn't have to climb a tree to get it. I'm making that up totally, but for whatever reason, it was another justification. Okay, we can talk about about the authorities that are over us. We uh, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a discussion or that we shouldn't uh, talk about what is going right and what is going wrong. Where where our, our government may be separating from uh, biblical principle, that is right and proper discussion. But when we stand and we attack authorities. When we stand, and and uh, I'm just going to say it, right? We we had a a president in the past, Donald Trump, who's running for to be president again, who was perfectly willing to attack authority. He would drag you through mud. He didn't care. Listen, I voted for the guy. May end up voting for him again, but uh, his character is flawed. But it may not even be those authorities. It might be our employers. And, and, and God has providentially put us where we are to work. And we may complain and speak badly of them and talk about how we're so unjustly persecuted or have such hardship or whatever it is at work. Or maybe it's even in our church that we would complain about the leadership in our church. And there may be valid concerns and there may be valid complaints. And those things, as we, we've mentioned numerous times so far, and we're going to mention it again, Right, we have something against them, and so we need to go to them. But we may attack authority. That I would know better. That I would, like Diotrephes, mimic that attack of authority. Because I know better. 
we know that there is no authority other than that which God has established. We may not serve the brethren, or we might fail in hospitality. Here is Diotrephes uh, doing that very thing, right? That those who would serve them, that those who would minister the, to them, he forbids it. Not only that, he, he doesn't receive them himself, and if you do go against them, and you do receive them, and you do minister to them, he's going to take you out of the church. Right? We may fail in our hospitality. We may uh, just be cold toward the brethren. Which is not what, what God commanded us to do. We, we may know better than God. Uh, doesn't whatever excuse we may put at the end of that. All I'm trying to get at and all I'm trying to illustrate is that we have an eye problem like Diotrephes, and if we simply will submit ourselves to the instruction of the Holy Spirit, he may just point something out that we didn't realize was there. Or maybe we did realize it was there, but we were unwilling to deal with it. Or we didn't know how to deal with it. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find... The nation of Israel has gone to war with the Amalekites at the, the at the command of God. And they're told, they're commanded to wipe everything out that they're supposed to, uh, I mean, every man, woman, and child, everyone is supposed to be killed, that all of the animals are supposed to be slaughtered, that they, they don't take the spoil. And what we find in 1 Samuel 15 is King Saul, who hasn't done what God has told them to do. He knew better. I know better than God. And in some respects, we get the sense that he's sincerely motivated. But that he doesn't think that he's doing something wrong until he's confronted about it, until he encounters truth. Uh, you know, he he says, listen, we're, yeah, we kept the best because we're going to offer those to God. Even though that's not what he commanded, that's not what he told us to do, we kept that. We're going to offer it to him. Interestingly enough, even though they were specifically commanded to kill all of the Amalekites, they kept the king alive. They kept Agag alive. We're never really told why there. He ends up getting away, by the way, and remember that we encountered one of his descendants in the book of Esther, in Haman, who is a persecutor of the nation of Israel. But in, as Samuel walks upon the scene and as he uh, approaches Saul, he says, listen, Saul, what's this bleeding in my, why do I hear sheep and why do I hear oxen? Right? You're supposed to have killed them all. Right? The sacrifice happened on the battlefield, buddy. Why do I hear them? And Saul gives him the excuses that he gives. And we, we pick it up here in verse 22. Uh, he says, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. All that means is that this rebellion is as bad as witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Right? Did my unwillingness to Look at the eye problem is like idolatry. Just like I said, that, that I become a God after my own heart, after my own imagination, after my own image. That's a hard pill to swallow because we all 
fall into that camp to whatever degree, yet in the goodness that God has in the Holy Spirit, he's gentle in dealing with us. And he's merciful to point those things out and to, to deal with them. We find in Ephesians 2.10 that we have a purpose for which we are created. Right? And we, we talk about this verse here at our church a lot, that, that here is what that in Christ we are his creation. And that we are created to walk in the paths and in the things that he has created us to walk in. That unlike Satan, who would know better than God, who would not do that which he is created for, he didn't want to do it, whatever, he would fill it in with excuses that he would know better that we are going to submit ourselves to that. That we would understand that there is a purpose and a calling. And with each purpose and calling, there may be a, a season in which that comes to a close. That there may be a beginning and an end, that there is a season, that there's a time for everything under the sun. And we look at that and we understand that, that that's the way that it is, that God in his sovereignty has established things to cycle to whatever degree and, and in accordance with his will and his plan and his purpose. So as we look at the I problem, we have to realize and we have to prayerfully seek the interaction and the instruction of the Spirit about what our calling is, what paths we ought to be walking in, and how long we walk in them, and where they come, and where they go, and where we turn left, and where we turn right. So that we are not like Satan, that we are not elevating ourselves, that we are beginning to address the I problem. In Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 Verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, or I beg with you, I entreat you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That everything, the, the holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. That everything that we have, when he says body, he means our life, everything that we do. The thoughts that we think, the, the things that concern us, uh, everything in our life, our bodies, our life is a living sacrifice to the Lord. That it would be submitted to him, that first and foremost for his glory, like Gaius, who, who, who is an example of that. And that he says in verse 2 that we're not conformed to this world. But we're, we're unwilling to su suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but we're willing to let the word of God shine into our lives and illuminate and lead and guide us. We're not conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Or we talk about taking every thought captive to the mind of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. And the only way that we can do that is to transform our thinking to make it conformable to his thinking. We do so through a study of the word of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Right? Paul is obviously uh, addressing some specific things here in the church in Rome, right? but he goes on. So we don't think of ourselves better than we are. 
But he goes on, he says, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. The other thing that we don't do is we don't think that there is nothing for us to offer. We think about ourselves soberly like Christ does, the way that he thinks about us. And what he just said for you and I is that he has dealt to every man the measure of faith. You and I each have something that we steward, like we talked about last week, that, that stewardship of the grace that we have received. And if we are fitly joined together, like Legos interlocking with one another, forming something that is, uh, in its individual parts, is useless and maybe even painful if you step on it, but when it's put together and assembled is functional and has purpose. right? We realize that that is the way that it is, and as a result of that, that we have to submit ourselves to what God is saying. That we all have something to be engaged in, that we would think about ourselves the way that He does. I know I kind of tease about it, and I use, you know, whether you're the nose or the the mucous membrane or whatever of the body, you know, the most undesirable things that I can think of. Yet we understand if we have any kind of comprehension of the body that those things are formidable and necessary within the body of Christ. They serve as protection. They serve as as encouragement. They serve as healing parts of the body. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. And the more that I study Romans chapter 6, the more that it becomes a very powerful chapter in, in the Word of God. Because it's, 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 in my opinion, and maybe I'm just simple, but in my opinion, as Peter talks about Paul and his epistles, and in those epistles there are hard things that are hard to understand, Romans 6 to me is one of those. But the more that I study it, the richer that it is and the fuller that it presents itself. And I'm actually reading a book by the same author of the Green Letters uh, that I got for Christmas, and it's called The Reckoning That Counts. And I'm not very far into it, but this is what he's talking about. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he says, Likewise, reckon yourselves or count yourselves, understand, know, that's what it means, know yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There, and, and there's two things here. Number one, that we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. And all that simply means for you and I is that we're not slaves to it. And, and we, we know that as we progress through our study in Romans, in chapter 7, Paul talks and he, about his struggle with sin. But he's not a slave to it. It doesn't control him. It doesn't dictate who he is or what he does. But he counts himself dead to sin. He may fail, he may have ups and downs, but the long and the short is this, that he is not a slave to it. He's dead to it. We count ourselves, we should count ourselves dead to sin. But secondly, what we also count ourselves, what we also reckon, is that we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That we are alive unto God. If you jump with me down to verses 22 and 23, he, he says sort of the same thing. He says, but now be made free from sin right, through our, our death in Christ, and become servants to God. You may have fruit unto holiness in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ his Son. Right? Here we are. We were slaves of sin, and that's what Romans 6 is about, that, that, that we were slaves of sin. That's where we were. 
But because we're dead to it now, it has no longer sway over us. We're not controlled by it any longer. We are made free from sin. In two ways, not only does it not have control over us, we have a choice, which we didn't previously have, but we are free from the burden of sin and death, from the consequence of sin and death, that we are free and liberated from the condemnation associated with our sinfulness. We read about that, about that in Romans chapter 8. but we have become the servants of God. We are alive unto God. We are alive to be his servants. That we would seek first his kingdom and his glory and his righteousness. That we would purpose in everything that we do to make him known and that we wouldn't hinder ministry like Diotrephes would. That as we move and we follow the, the paths that God has established for us to turn left or turn right or go this way or to do this thing or to not do that thing or begin this or to end this that we would submit to it whatever that looks like as hard as it may be as unpleasant as much as we don't want to in our submission and in our service to God and for his glory that we would serve him And so to that end, as we look at the atrophies, and we're, we're not quite done. We have a little bit more in Third John. We'll finish up next week. But to that end, in our, in our desire, in my desire to be submissive and honoring to God and following the paths and the things that he has called me to, I find that it's my increasingly unpleasant task to say that I'm going to be done. That the baseline fellowship is not where God has me any longer. And that's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And I don't want it. I didn't want to. I didn't, you know, I, Paul said, Jesus asked Paul, why do you kick against the goads? Why, why do you fight the things that I'm instructing you to do? And I have to ask myself the same question. And I realize that there are logistics and there's all kinds of things, and it, in many respects it kind of terrifies me, if I'm honest. But as the Lord has opened and closed seasons in my life, one of the clearest things that he, probably the second clearest thing that he ever told me to do was to start this church. And at this point, with the same amount of clarity, he's told me to close this church. In regard to the logistics and all of those things that are there, uh, because there are things there, we have a bank account that is full of money and my intention. And, and I asked for feedback in that regard. Uh, my intention, what I propose to do, is to simply distribute that amongst the missionaries that we've supported and the ministries that we've supported. Uh, so we would just equally a third to the whites, a third to Creation Training Initiative. We haven't financially supported Josh and Charity Griggs, though I would like to. I'd like to give them a third of that. 
I don't remember off the top of my head what that equates to in dollars, but I think there's just like $9,000 in there. And so what, historically what I've done is quarterly, I just send quarterly uh, uh, our support to the whites and to CTI. So their, their support would be due at this point anyway. Um, but I'm open to whatever we, we can distribute that. However, I, I don't know. Anyway, those are the logistics to deal with. And then everybody's going to have their own logistics and I, and I'm going to be right there with you. It terrifies me a little bit. Like I said, it, it's hard. It's harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, to be in service to the Lord, to follow him. Uh, it was a lot easier to start a church than to say that we're done. So on that less than positive note, let's uh, let's pray. Like I said, we, we have, I'm here next week. I'm preparing for next week to finish 3rd John. Uh but let's pray, let's worship. Lord, we pray, uh, we give thanks that you, Lord, your hand is with us, uh, that even in, even in the unsavory example of Diotrephes, that there is something for us to glean and for your spirit to instruct us in. And Lord, I'm very thankful for that, that your word is living and active and that it addresses us wherever we may be and in whatever we're doing. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that uh, so faithfully instructs that, that, Lord, your spirit is with us, that we might know your will. That your word, Lord, gives us clarity so that we can think about things the way that you do. And so, Lord, we commit this time of worship into your hands, Lord, just giving thanks for all that you've done. Praising you for all that you have provided. For the friendships, for the fellowship, Lord, for all, for all of the, the things that you were engaged in in everyone's life here, Lord, we do give thanks. Lord, we ask this now, and we praise you, and we look forward to time of fellowship and just discussion of uh, Lord, godly principles as we share share a meal this afternoon. Lord, we commit this time into your hands, and we ask it, and we, we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Aiden Lia Queen and renew all right spirit within me. Aiden Lia and renew all right spirit within me. Cast me not away, 
from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Store unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. Aid in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Aid in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Take my life and let it consecrated, Lord, to take my moments and my days, let them go this way. Let them flow and sleep. Take my hand and let them at the important Take my feet and let them be swift and pure. Take my voice and let me sing always on Take my lips and let them be filled with messages. Filled with messages. Take my will and make it mine. It shall be. Take my heart, it is thine, 
Take my love, my Lord, I adore. At thy feet it's treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever Thou my bridge, Lord of my heart, art the only else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, taking or sleeping, thy presence alone. Thou my wisdom, my true one, I love thee, thou with me, thou my great father, thou thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I with me one. Choose I keep. And empty pray, thou mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, the King of heaven, my treasure, King of victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven sun, part of my own heart, whatever be found, be my vision, be my vision, O Lord, we praise you and we thank you and we ask that you would be our vision. Lord, that you would lay before us the paths that you would have us to walk. Lord, that you would continue to knit us together in fellowship, knowing, Lord, that we are the body. We praise you and we thank you. We commit this time into your hands now in Jesus' name, for your glory and your honor. Amen.